You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I don't care who you are, it's pretty special getting introduced by your own daughter. Thank you, Summer. I'm very thankful for Summer. I thank God for Summer. I thank God for all our children and grandchildren, as she mentioned. And uh, yes, Defender Class of 1982. And I would like my uh, lovely, wonderful wife to stand. And she was Ann Weiss uh, in college, graduated with me in 1982. And thank you. Ann's, Ann's originally from Northern Illinois and um, came here to Asbury because of uh, your, your pastor and, and your church uh, encouraged you to come to Asbury. I, I grew up in Florence, as Summer mentioned, not too far north of here. I also want to uh, have you welcome our board chair. I'm very thankful for the chair of our board of trustees. I think you've seen him several times before, Larry Brown. Larry, if you don't mind standing, welcome Larry Brown. Larry is a tremendous board chair. He came here as a transfer student uh, many years ago, a year or two before uh, Ann and I showed up. Larry came as a transfer student from Pennsylvania. First time he ever laid uh, foot in the state of Kentucky was to come here to Asbury. Came here sight unseen. Uh, came for orientation, got assigned a room. Uh, his roommate showed up in the middle of the night. The next morning, his roommate said, I don't want a room with you. I want a room with somebody else. Kicked Larry out. Larry had changed dorms. I'm not exaggerating much. He says close, very close. Larry changed dorms, uh, but stuck with it. Larry's been all about Asbury for now, close to 50 years, 45 years. And um, you have a tremendous board chair here. He's, he's totally committed to Asbury. He's committed to you. So I'm going to reach back a little bit in my own life. Into my sophomore year here was not, uh, was not a good time for me. I was having what uh, we would call uh, relationship difficulties, among other things. Uh, my relationship difficulties were permanently over when I met Ann um, that fall. I haven't had a relationship difficulty in 41 and a half years. But uh, into my sophomore year was not... Uh, uh, a joyful time for me. I didn't like my classes, didn't know where I was going in life, didn't know what kind of career to pursue, and uh, generally just unhappy. Uh, one weekend, I happened to be up at a friend's house spending the weekend, and uh, I had a little bedroom upstairs, and Sunday afternoon, uh, nothing was going on. Uh, there was downtime. I was up in this little room. I was lying on the bed. Um, stretched out, face down, uh, miserable, and just uh, in general feeling very sorry for myself. And, and, and I, I dug my fist into the bed, and I just I said, God, everything is wrong. And it was as if I heard the voice of the Lord coming right back to me. And it said, Steve, I love you. And I muttered out loud, and I said, yeah, I know. And I, and I might as yeah, shameful, embarrassing. I might as well have said, yeah, big deal. I know. But then the voice came back in anger loudly and said, no, you don't know. You don't have the slightest idea how much I love you. 
And I said back, I'm sorry, you're right. And I, and I still hear that sometimes over the years um, when things don't seem to be going well or I'm disappointed in myself or circumstances are tough. I, I still hear the Lord sometimes saying, Steve, I love you. But now I say, thank you, Lord. I don't understand it fully. I'm sure I don't appreciate it fully, but thank you. And I don't think any of us fully understand how much God loves each of us. I don't think anybody in this room understands. Paul prayed in Ephesians that we could, that we could comprehend it, the, the width, the length of it, the height, the depth, the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. And he told us in Romans, as Paul writes, that nothing can separate us from that love, not death, not life, not angels, not demons, not anything in the present, not anything in the future, not any powers, not height, not depth, not anything that has been created can separate us from that love. It is, it's a reality, and we can enjoy it, we can be thankful for it, we can cherish it, we can walk about in it, and we can be confident in it every day. Jesus loves you. And he loves the person sitting next to you, too, and the person behind you, and, and he loves me. It is not a question. Uh, we question sometimes, does Jesus love humanity? Does he love our nation? Does he love the world? Does he love any particular individual? Does he love me? Does he love you? That's, that's not a question. It's an answer. There's only one question to the, to the world, to our nation, to any individual, to me, to you. There is only one question. Do we... Do I, do you love him? The first is an assurance. The second is a question. And, it, and it's a question that he directs to us. So this morning, I want to turn to our scripture passage, uh, which Summer introduced to us, John chapter 21. And I'll start with first one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's also another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together, uh, not named, not sure why, but there were seven altogether. So this was uh, days or weeks after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, had already made some various appearances. This is the third one recorded in John to the disciples. But uh, he had made some brief appearances, and you can kind of picture these seven. Uh, they'd spent a lot of time together the last few years. That certainly they were friends, not quite sure what was going on or what their next uh, instructions were or what lay ahead of them for the future. Just not quite sure. They hadn't gotten that, those final instructions from Jesus. Sh weren't sure when he would appear again. Uh, kind of waiting. He had said, wait for me in Galilee. He appeared uh, on a mountaintop in Galilee on one occasion. But here they are uh, by the sea, someone's home, I suppose, the seven of them hanging out one evening, probably chatting, snacking, whatever uh, they did in those days. Bored, probably. You can kind of imagine uh, one of them saying, what do you want to do? And another one says, uh, I don't know. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? It's, it's hanging. And finally, Peter, always uh, the man of action and uh, 
the leader of the group. Finally, Peter hops up and says, I'm going fishing. Let's go fishing. And the rest of them say, okay, we'll go too. So out they go, and they're out, out on the boat all night long. Verse 3, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So Jesus was on the shore. He knew exactly where they were, where to find them, how to get to them. For some reason, he let them spend the night alone out on the boat in the dark, catching nothing all night long, toiling away, but catching nothing. But Jesus shows up on the shore early in the morning as the sun's coming up, and he yells out to them at 100 yards away, yells out to them, have you caught any fish? They don't know it's him yet. They hear him, he says, for some, for, they hear him, he says, cast the net on the other side, and for some reason they do it, the stranger yelling at, at them, but they, they throw the net on the other side, and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish that were caught in the net. Later it tells us 153 fish, um, says large fish, based on the kind of fish in the Sea of Galilee, these fish probably weighed about 15 pounds apiece, so we're talking about over 2,000 pounds of fish in this net. And at that point, in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the way John frequently referred to himself, not the only disciple that Jesus loved, but a disciple, I am the disciple Jesus loves. You are the Asbury student that Jesus loves. I'm the Asbury alum that Jesus loves. But John says, that, therefore, the the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So Peter, always hyper, energetic, first to uh, respond, jumps in the water, not worrying too much about the fish or the six other disciples he's leaving behind. It says here we are, is still in verse 7, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. I don't really know why you put something on before you jump in the water, uh, what kind of cloak this was, this outer garment, but it says he put on a garment, jumped in the water, swam a hundred yards to shore. The other disciples came in the boat behind him, dragging this net full of fish because they were about a hundred yards out. And when they got on the shore, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it, already grilling and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Peter went back on board, hauled the net in, full of these fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, now Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Uh, what a great time. They hadn't seen him in who knows how many days. They'd been working all night out there in the, the dark. And there's Jesus, there's Jesus on the beach and they're having breakfast together and chatting and sharing stories and uh, just being grateful to be with him. And um, you, can, you can imagine the, the joy and, and the welcome and, and really the love they're feeling from Jesus to them. And none of them dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was him. Jesus took the bread, gave it to them and so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon, Peter, 
He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I wondered what was going through Peter's mind here. Everything's great. We're here having breakfast. I just swam in. We're having a good time. And all of a sudden, you pull me aside and you ask me, do I love you? I was like, what? And I don't know if he's having flashbacks to when he had denied Christ three times before Jesus' crucifixion just a few weeks before. He's having flashbacks to all the blunders he had made over Jesus' ministry, his, his overreaction, his impetuousness, the time Peter was out on this very sea walking on the water, and he started looking, he took his eyes off Jesus and started looking around and began to sink. He's thinking back to when he pulled his sword out and tried to chop a guy's head off there in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, got the ear, and Jesus healed the ear and probably saved uh, Peter from arrest right there. So I don't know what's going through Peter's mind, but Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So everything's cool, right? Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, I love you. Except Peter answered a different question than Jesus asked him. And this, this has to do with the inadequacies of our English language here. So in the Greek, the Greek New Testament, there's several different Greek words for love that, that all are translated into English as simply love. So when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he used the word agape. Do you love me with an agape love, self-sacrificing, self-giving, a totally committed love. Do you love me with a total commitment? And Peter answers, phileo. I love you with a brotherly love. You know, it kind of feels to me like when you're in a, a budding, maybe flourishing, about to become dating relationship, and one of the individuals says to the other, I like you as a friend. I love you as a friend. It, it's deflating. And this seems deflating to me. Jesus says, do you love me with a total commitment? And Peter says, I love you as a brother. So Jesus asks him a second time, do you love me with a total commitment? Using the word agape, agape, and, and Peter answers again, yes, I love you with a brotherly love. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He's asking Peter to be a leader, to shepherd the sheep, to shepherd the new Christians, to be a pastor, to be an evangelism, to serve. But then Jesus asked him a third time. And this time, Jesus changed the word. And I don't know if Jesus was now responding to, to where Peter was. I don't know if Peter was initially answering in terms of humility, unworthiness. But whatever the reason, Peter wouldn't, couldn't, didn't say, agape, I love you with an agape love. So, so Jesus comes back the third time and says, do you love me with a brotherly love? And here in verse 17, it, scripture reads, and Peter was grieved because the Lord asked him a third time. Was he grieved because the Lord changed the word? Was he grieved because it was three times in a row? Peter was grieved. I'm thinking, who should have been grieved? Jesus. Jesus is the one who should have been grieved. Jesus, the one who came to his own and his own received him not. 
Jesus, the one who stood above Jerusalem, said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, and yet you would not. Jesus, the one who was put on trial, and despite Pilate saying, I find no guilt in him, the crowds are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Release to us Barabbas. Jesus was not feeling any love. Jesus had poured himself into his disciples. The one betrayed him. He'd poured himself into these disciples. Peter was a leader. Jesus suffered and died for every one of us, including Peter. Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to Peter, back here with the leader of his disciples, asking Peter, do you love me with a total commitment? And after all this, Peter still has to say, I love you like a brother. And then Peter answers this time, he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you like a brother. And, you know, this, this is, seems a little snarky to me. I don't want to assume something that's not there. But do you ever pull this one on God? God, you know everything. You know everything anyway. Why do I have to pray for something? Why do I have to tell you everything's in my heart or on my mind? You already know it. Why do I even have to decide anything? You already know what I'm going to do. You know what, my, what lies ahead of me in my future. And that's true. But Jesus wants to hear it from us. He wants to hear what our prayer is. He wants to hear what our commitment is. And one thing he won't do although he knows our future and what we will do, he will not decide it for us. He will not make our decisions for us. He will not force us to love him in any sense and certainly will not force us to love him with a total commitment. But that's the way Peter answered. He said, you know everything. You know I love you with a brotherly love. And then Jesus simply answers him again, Feed my sheep. I've got work for you. I've got a life ahead of you of service in my church. And then Jesus goes on to talk about Peter's future in verse 18 here. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Jesus lays out the future of service, but also a future martyrdom. Peter would end up giving his life for the Lord, for God's glory. So at this point, Peter says, what? Does he say, I'll go anywhere for you, Lord. I'll do whatever you ask, Lord. I'm willing to give my life for you, Lord. Does he say, is there any other way? Is there another path? Can we talk this over? No. Peter looks over his shoulder and sees John and says, what about him? And of course, what about John? What's John doing following along, eavesdropping on the whole conversation? And you get the sense through the Gospels, there's some competition between John and Peter uh, on, on several occasions. Uh, you know, Peter, robust, athletic, swam 100 yards, uh, a man of great energy, but... John tells us on Easter Sunday morning when they're running to the tomb, John outraced him, ran on ahead. So you get the sense of some competition and rivalry, but John falling behind, and Peter, you ever pull this one on God? I, mean, I, I have, and fortunately maybe still do. You ever pull this one on God? What about him? What about her? 
why don't I have that talent? Why don't I have that skill? Why don't I have that money? Why don't I have that family? Why don't I have that job? Why are you calling me to do this and not him or her? And we look around and we talk about others and we think about others and it's, uh, it puts us in a bad place. But it's what Peter did. He looked around and said, what about him? What's he have to do? Why aren't you asking him? Does he love you? And Jesus says, what is that to you? Because Jesus certainly deals with humankind, I think on a global, universal level. He deals with nations. He deals with kings. But ultimately, he deals with us one on one. And he says, he's saying that to you and me this morning. As we're looking around and comparing ourselves to other or others or being jealous of others, Jesus says, saying to me, saying to you, what is that to you? But what did uh, loving God end up looking like for Peter? Peter went on to be a great leader, preached a great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Thousands came to the Lord suffered mistreatment, suffered jail, built up the church, and ended up indeed giving his life for the Lord. I love reading in uh, the epistles of Peter, some 30 years later, probably after this event, as Peter's writing these epistles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter talks about loving God with an agape love, totally committed, self-sacrificing, self-giving. And he's talking to the Christians, and he, said, and he says to the Christians, love each other in two places in the epistles. Love each other with a brotherly love and add to it agape, both occasions. And, and I wonder as he was writing these words, if he was thinking back to the time when he, when he couldn't say it, when he couldn't say total commitment. But church tradition, church history has it that Peter and his wife were both crucified under Nero, shortly after Nero burned Rome and blamed the Christians, and Peter was forced to watch. And there's still people in our world forced to do this, to watch their wife, their husband, their child martyred in front of their eyes. But Peter was forced to watch his wife being crucified and then when it got to him, he said, hang me upside down. Put my cross upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my Lord did. Peter came to total commitment. And then we look at us because Jesus this morning is looking at you and me, looking at us eye to eye, face to face with the same question, do you love me? with a total commitment. And he indeed is asking for a total commitment. And what will that look like in our lives? Will it look like worship? Will it look like communication and prayer and hearing from him in his word? Will it look like service? And it will look a lot like obedience. Because Jesus repeated that several times. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. And in your situation, loving Jesus day by day, sometimes it's going to look like studying when you don't feel like it. 
showing up for work when you don't feel like it, making an apology when you don't feel like it, forgiving somebody when you don't feel like it, avoiding things that, not doing things that you'd otherwise like to do, doing some things that you don't want to do, accepting challenges from the Lord that seem like too much from you. But, but I think we, we, we know what it looks like to live in commitment to our Lord. And I liked what um, Greg Hasselhoff said on Wednesday as I was watching that chapel. And uh, I know you've been reflecting on this uh, in, in your services this fall. When, when you're talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus asked us to do, as Jesus told us was the most important thing in our life, the number one commandment, as Jesus asked us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Greg said on Wednesday, this is not about trying harder. It's not like just putting more effort. So I got to get this right. I got to get this right. If I, only, if I only got up a little earlier, I could get it right. Or if I only spent a little more time in my Bible reading, I could get it right. It's not just about trying harder. There's certainly effort involved in following Christ, and there's energy to be expended. But it's not an issue of trying harder. It's an issue of shifting our affection, shifting our devotion, shifting our love and our priorities to the one who asked us, do you love me? To the one who was with God, who is God, very God of very God from all eternity, the one who came and walked among us and gave himself for us, and the one who's coming back and the one before whom we will all bow along with every soul who has ever lived, before whom we will all bow and declare he is Lord. He will be King of kings, Lord of lords, reign forever. And what does loving him look like for us? Loving him looks like spending an eternity with him in joy. Thank you for letting me share. I'll just leave you with this. He's looking at me. Jesus is looking at you. He's asking you, do you love me? with a total commitment. Amen.